Well, good morning again. Now you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Going to look today at verses 31 through 34. And as you're turning there, um, my family and I are now officially residents of Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, Wow. Some some love in the room. Uh, I'm not convinced yet that it's almost heaven. Um, I've not seen Jesus there. I've not seen a sea of glass or uh, the pearly gates, but it is beautiful, and uh, we're still getting getting settled in there. Our move to Morgantown was very interesting, uh, a real adventure. It's a state known as wild and wonderful, and that was a great way to move into the state, but we got everything in the house. Um, had a couple of days to unpack some things, and then we headed to Indiana for a couple of weeks and just got back uh, on Friday. We were there to see family and friends and some supporters, and that was a great time of encouragement and relaxation. But we've stayed in uh, many different places over the last few weeks. I've slept in several different beds. Uh, my son Andre came with me on this trip. We stayed here overnight. Uh, he's got an orthodontist appointment in the morning, so we're here for that. Uh, But I woke up early this morning, and I did not know where I was, for sure. I had to really think about where I was. Oh, yeah, I'm preaching today. So (laughs) thankfully, my sermon was done at that time. But God is good, and God is good all the time. And this is just for a time and a season. And I'm grateful to be back here with all of you, thankful for the opportunity to preach today and look at the unstoppable grace of God with you from Romans chapter 8. So today we're going to look at verses 31 to 34, and next week, uh, which will be my final Sunday to be with you all, we'll look, Lord willing, at verses 35 through 39. So I think it'd be good just to read 31 to 39 today, and then uh, we'll have prayer and look at this great passage, 31 to 34, together this Lord's Day. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you for these incredible truths, these amazing promises that are found in your word in this great letter to the Romans that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, I just pray as we examine these verses today and again next week that 
Lord, you would minister to us, that you would remind us of your unstoppable grace and your unfathomable love for us. Lord, thank you for loving us when we were your enemies, for loving us when we hated you, and for your amazing grace that we just sang about. Bless this time, Lord, as we look to your inerrant word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to one of the most comforting, one of the most uplifting, and most praised passages in all of Scripture. Commentators have called these verses a hymn of assurance, a triumphant song, and the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, who's now with the Lord, wrote this. He said, these accolades are surely all too weak. This is a mountaintop paragraph. It is the Everest of the letter and thus the highest peak in the highest Himalayan range of Scripture. I love that. And by a series of hypothetical questions and bold assertions, Paul affirms that complete and utter assurance of justification and ultimate redemption can and should be experienced by every man, woman, boy, and girl who claims the name of Jesus Christ. So we're going to break up this hymn into stanzas, again, looking at verses 31 to 34 this morning, and then next week looking at verses 35 to 39. And as we come to this text this morning, may we be reminded that this is not the word of man, and these are not just the words of the Apostle Paul, but this is the unvarnished, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of the true and living God. Amen? And may we receive it as such this morning and be comforted by the truths and the promises that are found within. just want to start here in verse 31 when Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And if you join like we're doing today, jump right in the middle of this text, you ask the question, what things? Well, I think it's all of these things, all of the things that are found in what has been called the greatest letter ever written, the epistle to the Romans beginning in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So from 1.16 all the way to Romans 8, 29, and 30, the immediate context where Paul says this, go ahead and look at that with me, where he says, actually, let's start in verse 28. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Taking all these things, as Paul says, into consideration, then what conclusion should be drawn? Well, Paul gives it to us in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? There is no doubt here. If he is for us, and you need to know this morning, if you are in Christ, he is for you. 
and he is for me. And I think it would be good to just stop and meditate on that for a moment. He is for us. Those who are in Christ and those who have trusted in Jesus by faith and faith alone. It's probably better translated here to say, since God is for us, and we understand as Christians that there are some that are against us, maybe in our own family, in our own friend group, maybe where we work, maybe neighbors, people who are not for us, people who are against us. We see in scripture that we have three main enemies. We have the world and we have the flesh and we have the devil. And if we were to forget all that Paul has said from Romans 1.16 to verse 8.30, chapter 8, verse 30, we might answer this question, the question, who is against us with one of these three enemies, the world or the flesh or the devil. The world is against me as it sets itself up against the things of God. The flesh that I have with me 24-7 is against me as it wars against the spirit of God that dwells within my heart. The devil is against me and would love to destroy me. But it does not matter because God is for us. The one who really counts is on our side. Amen. The God of angel armies, as we sang about just a moment ago. This is God with a capital G. This is God and very God. This is the maker and the creator of all things. This is the God who was the God who is, and the God who is to come. This is the God who has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. This is the God who has declared the end from the beginning. This is the God who is on the throne even now, ruling and reigning. This is the God who is orchestrating all things. And this is the God who is sovereign and in absolute control of all things. That God is for us. That God is on our side. That God is our advocate and our friend. When you think about that, we know ourselves, we know how sinful we are. We know our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and how evil we are. And to think about the fact that God is for us, God is on our side, it's almost too much to take in too much to comprehend. I think it makes us want to throw up our arms with the Apostle Paul and declare with him as he does at the end of Romans 11 when he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God is for us. Again, us. Those of us who are here today that are in Christ Jesus, those who have placed faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Those of us who have been born again and have been covered with the righteousness of Christ. But dear friend, if you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ, you have not yet been born again, you need to know, and I say this with all love and sincerity, that he is not for you. He is against you. We'd like, the world would like us to think we are all God's children. We're all on the path. You have your God, I have mine. We're all gonna get there eventually. Just choose the path that works best for you. But the Bible would tell you outside of Christ, you are an enemy of God. 
you are at war with God. You are at enmity with him. You are like those that Jesus confronted in John chapter 8, where he said, you are of your father, the devil. You are a child of wrath at this very moment, and it is only by his grace that you are kept alive for one more moment and for one more breath. You are in great danger. The Bible states that God is a consuming fire. And there is a place called hell reserved for all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a real place and it is eternal. It is a place of torment where there is no relief for all of eternity. It's a place of outer darkness that is described as uh, a place where there is a fire that is not quenched and where the worm does not die. It doesn't sound like a place where you just party with all your friends. God is holy and righteous. He is too pure to even look upon evil as the prophet Habakkuk tells us. And you are evil and wicked and you will not be able to stand in his presence. That's really, really bad news. But there is good news for you today. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone, flee to Jesus and trust in him and in his finished work on the cross and what he has done for sinners, you will be saved. You too will be covered with his righteousness as a robe and you will go from being his enemy to being his friend. So I would, I would implore you to do so today while today is still called today for today is the day of salvation. I want you to look at how God demonstrates that he is for us, that he is on our side. And we see that here in verse 32. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God delivered Jesus over to be crucified. This was part of God's foreknowledge. It's what God ordained before the foundation of the world. Acts 2.23, Peter says, this man, referring to Jesus, and he says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. If you don't know the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, this would sound like a great tragedy, Shakespearean type of tragedy, but this was pleasing to the Lord. This was the Father's plan. As we read in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the coming of Jesus, where Isaiah prophecies and says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Later in that same chapter in verse 10, we read that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Christ died for God, and God was satisfied with the death of his one and only son. Romans 5, 8, the 
verse that we examined the last time that I preached here says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul wrote the Corinthians and said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then Galatians 1, 3 to 4, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Verse 32, again, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Friends, if you need reassurance today that God is for us, that God is for you, you don't even need to go back to Romans 1 and read all the way up to chapter 8. We only need to be reminded of this truth, that the Father sent His beloved Son to the cross for us. He has already given us the greatest thing that He had to give. Therefore, will He not give us the other things that He has promised in His Word? God is a loving Father. God is a God who desires to give good gifts to his children. In Matthew 6, 11, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? James 1, 17, James, the brother of Jesus, says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The greatest gift of all was the gift of his son, which resulted in our salvation, our justification, the forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life with Christ himself. And so in the midst of our spiritual death, as we read about earlier in Ephesians, in our willful rebellion against his rule, in our running away from him as fast as we possibly could, in that state, that is when God calls us and delivers us from bondage to sin and brings us into union with Christ, adopting us as sons and daughters. And then he begins this process that Paul speaks about here in verse 29, where he is conforming us to the image of his son, a process that continues all the way until we are glorified and made to be just like Christ. Paul continues to assert here the complete security of believers by flinging even more rhetorical questions at his readers. In verse 30, verses 33 to 34, he posits here two questions that have to do with the legal basis of our salvation. Look in verse 33. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect. The word elect in the Greek here is the word eklektos. It means select or chosen or favorite. Paul is saying, 
who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Against those who he has selected, upon whom he has shown his favor? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world? And again, not because of anything good in them, not because of anything he saw in them. It is heretical to think that we first chose God and therefore God chose us based on our good decision. That's not biblical. God chose us when we were dead. Satan will bring charges. I don't know if you know this, but Satan hates you. Doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want you to grow. He doesn't want you to be an effective witness in your community. He doesn't want you to bring God glory. Jesus calls him the father of lies as the thief who comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Peter describes him as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. In Revelation, he is seen as the accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He, accuses, he who accuses them before our God day and night. The devil loves to accuse us of wrongdoing. Other people like to point out our faults, right? Our own consciences frequently display our, our failures and our shortcomings. Sinclair Ferguson has written a good book um, called By Grace Alone. Sinclair is one of my favorite theologians. And in commenting on this great passage, Ferguson speaks about the four most powerful fiery darts that Satan aims at Christian believers in order to destroy their enjoyment of the grace of God. Fiery dart number one, God is against you, Satan says. He is not really for you. How can you believe that he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Fiery dart number two, I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in your defense? Nothing. Fiery dart number three. You say you are forgiven, but there is a payback day coming, a condemnation day, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? And fiery dart number four. Given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? Satan asks. The inspiration for Ferguson's book is the remarkable hymn entitled, Oh, How the Grace of God Amazes Me. It's by an African pastor named Emmanuel T. Sibomana. One of the stanzas of that hymn speaks of those fiery darts that are hurled at us by Satan himself. As this pastor writes, Now all my heart's desire is to abide. In him, my Savior dear, in him to hide. My shield and buckler he, covering and protecting me. From Satan's darts I'll be safe at his side. The phrasing of Paul's question here shows that he is thinking of a charge that would place us outside of the favor of God, a charge that would lead to condemnation. 
a charge that would result in damnation. But such can never be. And we know that because of what God says next through the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 33 at the end. He says, God is the one who justifies. Go back to verse 30. As we look at this whole process of salvation, of sanctification, beginning in verse 29, for those whom he pre-knew, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All whom God foreknows, he predestines. All whom he predestines, he then calls. All whom he calls, he justifies. He declares to be righteous, based not on their works of righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his substitutionary death on the cross. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares a believer righteous. God is the one who pronounces that someone is holy. Who can accuse someone that God has declared to be righteous and holy? And the answer is no one. Again, James Montgomery Boyce says, no charge can be brought against those whom God has chosen if God, the supreme judge of the entire universe, has acquitted them. There is no misstep by the judge that would form the basis of an appeal. There is no hung jury, for this is not a trial or examination by a jury. There is no loophole in the law by which we might be accused. There is no higher court in which to seek redress. The judge, the righteous judge, the judge of the universe has ruled and no charges brought against us will stick. So he says in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? And so now Paul ups the ante here in verse 31 by asking, who is he who condemns? Who can send one of God's people or one of God's elect to everlasting punishment? Having already seen the previous question and its answer, the only possible response to such a question is obvious. No one, nothing could overrule God's judgment and cause one of his children to be separated from him. Amen. Thank you. Thank God. We learned of this great fact earlier in this epistle. If you find it there, it's chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love those little words in scripture, like what we read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and then we see the word, but God, right? That small word. I love the word now, don't you? There is therefore even now, this day, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The King James there reads, shall not come into condemnation. Paul in Romans 5, 16 says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. 
But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. But in explaining why no one can condemn us, Paul turns from his emphasis on the things that God has done for us to the things that Christ has done for God on our behalf. The great works that constitute the ground of our justification. Verse 34, again, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ died to propitiate or to satisfy the Father's wrath and to atone for our sin. Christ rose again and demonstrated that his death was a true atonement. Christ ascended to the Father and was enthroned in power. He sat down at God's right hand, not because he was tired, but because his work was complete, demonstrating that he accomplished and completed the work that the Father had sent him to do. And now Christ, along with the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us, praying for us and petitioning the Father for all of our needs. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is no need for our Lord to defend the believer. He has already done so once and forever. But in any case, it is God the Father himself who sent his son to do the work There can never be any question in God's mind with regard to any of his children. Friends, God in Christ has saved us. No one, therefore, can condemn us. Amen? Earlier this morning, I read from Revelation chapter 12. I read verse 10. I want to read that for you again. It says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. I didn't read verse 11, but I will now. And it says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. They overcame the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of the word of their testimony, which was a testimony of the Lord's salvation. No accusation can stand against those whose sins have been forgiven because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. No condemnation. No means no here. No condemnation. Charles Wesley in his great hymn, And Can It Be, writes those words, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Wilbur Chapman wrote a a, a hymn called Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. One of the lines he says, Jesus, I do now receive him. More than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Friends, I want you to know in closing that he is, if you are in Christ today, he is with you to the end. He is with me to the end. 
He is with you and for you to the end. He is with you for all eternity. And he is for you for all eternity. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's thank him in prayer. Lord, you are an amazing God. There is no one like you. Lord, we cannot compare you to anything we know in this life or in any life to come. God, you are unique. You are holy, holy, holy. You are separate from us. You are a cut above. You are in a class all by yourself. And Lord, we are amazed again today at the unstoppable grace of Almighty God. Lord, we did not deserve your grace. Your grace is unmerited favor. Lord, we get what we don't really deserve. And you have given that to us freely because of your great love with which you loved us. Thank you, Lord, that you are rich in mercy. You are abounding in loving kindness. And we who are in Christ are the recipients, Lord, of that great love. I would just pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never trusted in Christ, they, they don't know of the grace of God. They don't know of the protection and the security that is found in knowing Christ. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you bring them home. God, just as you have done for so many of us in this room, I pray that you would cause them to see that you are holy, you are righteous, you don't grade on a curve, Lord, you desire and demand perfection, and we have all missed the mark. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in our sins. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are separated from you. Our sins have separated us from you so that you can't even hear us. Lord, that is bad news. But we thank you for the gospel that you sent your one and only son who came and left the glory of heaven and lived a perfect and sinless life. One who was tempted in every way that we are tempted yet knew no sin and went to the cross in obedience to the father as ordained before the foundation of the world. We thank you for Jesus who laid down his life for sinners and that all who would believe in him, all who would entrust themselves to him and in his finished work at Calvary would be forgiven of their sin and have everlasting life. So Lord, if there's anyone outside of Christ today, grant them repentance from their sin. Give them faith to believe in your son that they too might be saved and you would bring them all the way to glorification. Thank you for your amazing grace, your matchless, marvelous, infinite grace in which we stand. We pray these in Jesus, things in Jesus' name. Amen.